0: So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Mark Bernstein. We'll be sitting in for Matt Watson today.
1: What's up, Mark? Hey, Matt, how's it going?
0: Oh, I'm, you know, I'm having a lot of problems. I'm finding that my level of intelligence as a salesperson continues to drop. And I'm not sure if that's because of the massive amount of things that I need to know to be successful, or if it's because I continue to get older. And I, I know you're an expert and so is your company, but we're, we're going to get right into that. And uh, once again with us today is Mark Bernstein. Mark is the CEO and founder of Balto. I'm excited about today's episode because I, uh, we've got with us today a very innovative company and also a company that was recently on Startup Hustle's top St. Louis startups. It's a pleasure to reach out to the other side of the state of Missouri and see so many people doing cool stuff. Mark, welcome to Startup Hustle.
1: Thank you, Matt. St. Louis is hot with tech activity right now, and Balto is very happy to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, and you guys are doing really cool stuff. I'll let you explain more about what you guys do. If you want to give us a little background on what your backstory is and the problem that you're solving, that'd be great.
1: Sure. So I'll start out by saying that Balto helps sales and service people be as effective on their phone calls as humanly possible. That's the goal. And the way that we do that is the application analyzes sales and service conversations while they are actually happening. So it breaks down everything that the sales rep is saying, everything the customer is saying, listens to both sides, and in real time will give the sales rep recommendations for how they can be as effective as possible on the phones. And the way – oh, go ahead, Matt. You were thinking something –
0: Well, I was just going to say as a a, a salesperson, that's invaluable because an interested buyer has objections. They have questions. And that's why I mentioned earlier that on some days, I feel like my own sales intelligence has dropped because there's so many answers to so many different things.
1: There are. And there's so many very painful mistakes that we all make all the time. And it's the stuff that Obviously, there's there's some complex answers that we need to give on our calls sometimes, and there's a lot of details that we need to give, but sometimes it's just not talking, just not talking so much, or that you get nervous and you have someone who's pushing you a little bit, and you speed up and speed up and speed up, and then you start getting that feeling which makes you feel like the call is out of control. Those are the sort of things that are also really basic, and Balto will listen for that and pop up a recommendation on your computer that says, hey... Let the other person talk, slow down. We're all human and we all make mistakes. And you know that you're supposed to do better than this.
0: That's amazing. So I, now that you made that sound a lot simpler than I know it is. So, you know, is this artificial intelligence, voice recognition, machine learning, probably a combination of all?
1: Oh, yeah. All, all of the above. Um, and, you know, in, in sales, the most important thing you can do is keep it simple and focus on the other person's needs. So I don't want to over-explain it, but uh, the idea here is that you're capturing the audio in real time, you're doing speech-to-text to to take everything that's being said and convert it into text, and then you layer AI on top of that and pick out in the text what is going on in this conversation. And the AI finds something that says, oh, Matt just gave you a... Uh, objection about pricing. He said, your price is too high. I would never pay that. Well, Balto picks that up and goes, perfect. I think the right thing we need to do is pop up these three questions to Matt so he can ask the customer back, well, what makes you think that the pricing is too high? And that's the sort of thing they are able to do right there while the folks are on the phone. So it is uh, definitely complicated behind the scenes, but we try to keep it simple.
0: Yeah. And so, in, in order to do that effectively, you probably have to go through. Uh, well, I don't know how extensive it is, but every product is different, every business is different, every salesperson is different, and every client is different. So, how how do you go about tackling that overwhelming task up front?
1: Yeah, uh, Balto lets folks customize it. So, if we tried to suggest for every customer, every company, every industry what you should say we say oh we know the right the right responses uh everyone would say no you don't you don't know my business you know you're just getting to know me now so what we do is we give you the ability to uh, use balto to pick up the very common events that are happening in folks sales sales calls and when you pick it up then you get to envision what is the perfect response if everyone in this moment always asked this question or everyone always gave this value prop what would happen on my calls so we give the ability to do that at scale
0: and you know that i mean the struggle is real for that i've gone through this myself and now for those of you listening, you know, I like it when you're interactive, go to baltosoftware.com or scroll down and click the link in the show notes. So you can, I mean, they have a product tour, they have different solutions and you guys are doing stuff not only for sales, but for customer service, account receivable and different uh, compliance and quality type stuff, which, you know, when I say the struggle is real, I mean it. So, you know, whether you're a salesperson or in any of those other parts of the company that I just mentioned, it's impossible, especially early, like if you just started a job to have any idea about how to answer stuff. And, you know, we talk about scale. And before we hit record, Mark and I were talking about the the, uh, how missed opportunities can pile up. And if you're not familiar with the term opportunity cost, uh, that's the value of a foregone option, meaning what you don't choose or what you miss out on. And if you have a, if you, if your business is growing or you plan on growing it, missed opportunities become really, really expensive. And, for for those of you that listen often, you know that I'm one of the founders of Full Scale and our average account spends over thirteen thousand dollars a month. If I miss one of those accounts a month, uh wow. I mean, that becomes I mean, that is like millions and millions of dollars in sales at the end of the year. So I mean, is that is that was it was it wanting to reduce opportunity costs that made you get into this or like how like what was the ori- original problem that you were trying to solve
1: It was messing up a lot of sales calls Matt I'll give you a quick story here the Please. I remember my first sales call that I ever made vividly because I'm dialing through this list in Salesforce and at the time it was hand dialing I didn't have a dialer I was actually picking out the numbers and, and calling them And I was maybe seven, eight dials in. I got a bunch of no connects and then someone picks up and here I am out of college thinking that I'm hot shit because that's how everyone feels when you get out of college and you're doing sales. You go, oh, I'm going to show everybody. Person picks up. Hello. And I remember the feeling is like I had just been gargling peanut butter for like 10 minutes. I couldn't get the words out. And it sounded like, hello, Matt, it's Mark. How are you doing? And the person said, what? I was like, oh, Matt, because I couldn't get the words that I was so nervous. And the uh, person ended up hanging up the phone. And obviously, uh, I got a little bit better than that. But the, the concept of in the moment, not having the right words to say. And in the moment, knowing what you're supposed to do, but just not doing it. That's one of the things that everyone who has been in sales knows. And there's a feeling, I wish I could I could name it, like uh, Matthew, what's that German word for like uh, guilt? It's like Freud's or something. Not sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, there's a German word for like a very special sort of guilt. And I feel like there's almost this word for the emotion you get in sales when you hang up the phone and you messed up your call and you just think to yourself, shoot. I totally blew that. And how can we have salespeople have less of those?
0: So I, I have an interesting story for you as well. That So Joey, who is our social media manager at our office in Cebu City, Philippines, used to work in a call center. And it was, we'll call it pseudo automated. Hmm. Because prior to tech, technology solutions like Balto, uh, some places would actually have a human that would listen. And it was like she had a a keypad and she told me all about it last time I was there listening to people like almost giving voice prompts and different stuff and like triggering like, hey, this is what, you know, it's like supporting the rep. It was like someone that knew the product. So there was a human sitting there tendering possible things to others. And it's just, I mean, this has been a problem we're solving for, for quite a while. And Um, You know, you mentioned that term pressure. Uh, You know, salespeople are required to perform or you're not going to keep your job for very long. And also, in most places, salespeople eat what they kill. And You mentioned that pain and that agony, and you know, you say feeling like hot shit out of college. Well, salespeople are are ego driven creatures as well. So, you know, we we some of us take failure differently, but really, in the end, we all want to win. We all want to sell stuff. So, you had mentioned prior to hit and record that uh, an insurance company or companies like that would. Uh, you know, be really big potential clients of Balto. And that made so much sense right away because you think about all the different things in a policy and stuff like that. Uh, Is some of this meant to prevent giving bad information too? Because like nothing's going to piss off a client or a customer more than being told one thing and then being delivered another.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. And in the uh, contact center world, there's a metric that they focus on called first call resolution. And that is when you called in as the customer, what percent of the time do you leave that call and you say, oh, great. My question was fully answered. This was awesome. And uh, often what happens is you go to the call, the sales or service rep tells you whatever their best guess is, and you leave the call and you realize, wait a minute, that didn't make any sense. And then you call back. So you can actually measure and contact centers will measure how often are you getting essentially the right information. And one of the reasons is it's so freaking tricky to make sure that you always give the right information. Bunch of different types of questions, bunch of different scenarios, different policies, different procedures, and things change, right? So Matt, imagine that you're trying to adapt to COVID and your company just is pretty much daily rolling out new procedures for what to do, when people ask for discounts because of COVID. And you have the, the first one says, well, we're going to give you a one-month allowance where anyone can uh, have one month forgiven. And then you have a new policy that says, well, we don't do that anymore, but we do a free trial. And then you have a new policy. How do you keep up with that? And uh, what, what Balta will do is it'll make sure that um, in the moment that someone asks about that, you got all the right answers that you need right there.
0: So this kind of stuff's tricky, and people hear AI and machine learning, and they, you know, they think it's been around forever because they heard it ten years ago, or they watched The Terminator or something like that. But a lot of this stuff is still, and it's I don't want to say relative; it's not necessarily infancy, but it's kind of like adolescent years. Um, I'm old enough to remember like the internet actually coming out, and like it was a wild, it was the wild west for a long time, and there was a lot of you know, things that were really challenging. What have been, you know, with and you founded your company in 2017, is that correct? That's right. So three years in, what are some of the biggest challenges you've had to overcome and what have you had to figure out about getting this stuff to work?
1: Yeah, I think the term that you use adolescent years is pretty spot on, which is that the AI industry, the tech industry, the SaaS industry are all going through this growth spurt. Uh, Especially, by the way, given that everyone just packed up their bags and went remote. And now you just took everyone all over the country and even all over the world and sent them home and say, this is how you do your job now. So companies are, are looking at their workforces and saying, well, what do our people need in order to be successful? The thing that has been so challenging in that growth spurt is that everyone is trying to figure out the right applications for AI and the wrong applications for AI. And people make mistakes. So it f- first started with people saying, uh, can I automate everything? And a lot of uh, companies were producing AI to automate things, right? And the big examples that you often hear is back office functions. So can I automate invoicing? Can I automate um, uh, putting information into a, into a system, and an admin? Can I automate that? And then what people realize is, well, wait a minute, just like how people make mistakes and sometimes your admin sends the invoice to the wrong place or sometimes you put the wrong info in, AI is going to make mistakes too. And the mistakes that people make are are often you know, one one detail missing, right? It's like, oh, you should have sent it to uh, unit 70A, 70A and you sent it to unit 7B,
0: Something only like takes that. one. It only takes once, <laughs> in most cases.
1: But the AI's no. mistake will be hilarious. So the AI's mistake will be like, "Oh, I thought you wanted me to send you not send it to Unit Seven A. I thought you wanted me to send you a new air conditioning unit to Seven A. Right? It's the sort of thing where it's missing that context and it makes mistakes. So then you, you had this evolution where people started talking about human in the loop." which is how do you have an AI that is uh, working in the background to do things better, faster, but have some human as part of the process checking over the work to make sure that it's doing the right stuff. So to get back to uh, the question about the biggest challenge, uh, that's it. It's finding that balance, that perfect, perfect, beautiful balance where the AI is serving you up as much useful, accurate information as possible And still leaving the person in control to look over that information very quickly and efficiently and make good decisions with it. That balance is one we've never had to deal with before.
0: What about speed issues? Because I think a lot of people just assume that something like AI is, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, tracking and doing intelligent things within the context of a real-time conversation. Um, my, first, my first real experience with voice recognition stuff was was three years ago or four years ago when I was writing my first book. And I was looking, you talk about the AI being goofy. I was trying to find some transcription software that was accurate. And four years ago, oh my God, it was terrible. Like it was easier to just not use it because the amount of time that I was spending correcting the contextual errors and like you'd say something and it'd be like Betty White I'm like I didn't even say Betty White like that's a 90 year old comedian you know like how do you pull that out of there but it was always it always took time to process and it was never really fast and up to speed so like has that been an issue and how did you overcome it
1: yeah I would say that uh, it's actually funny because when we were starting this in 2017 I was talking to our our CTO and we were putting together the first beta and he started coding it and said, Mark, good news. I think I can get uh, Balto fast enough where it can give you the recommendation 10 seconds after somebody says something. And I was like, awesome, 10 seconds. It's amazing. That's an eternity. That is an eternity. 10 seconds, you have a new conversation. Yeah. Uh, But I didn't know that at the time. And uh, long story short is that uh, now it's just about a second. So um, it actually is surprisingly much, it has been surprisingly much easier uh, to get speed than I had thought, simply because of how amazing computing power has been and server architecture has been, and the fact that you can point different servers at different problems at the same time. you know, and then huge props to you know cloud services like AWS for making that possible, where you if you can dream it on, on AWS and, and you know, services like that, you can build it and you can just point computers at the problem, make it faster and faster until it it accomplishes the need. Then the question is about containing costs, but that's a question that every tech company dreams of having, which is can I deliver an awesome product that's a little too expensive in the beginning? And then over time get my margins better and better
0: though you answered my next question because the computing power that's required to do a lot of that some people don't realize you you hear about cloud computing and all this different stuff like you're paying for the amount of resources that you're pulling out of the cloud or that you're generating in there like how it okay so if you go out into your driveway and you start your car and you leave it in park but you redline the rpms you're going to burn more gas than idling and that's the same way that cloud stuff goes did you have a did you get i've talked to so many people that have received that surprise invoice even if it was for like three days and you're like whoa uh did you ever get one of those oh
1: yeah oh yeah <laughs> And it's,
0: I, I laugh, but they're not funny. But you're like, oh wow, this could get out of control in a hurry.
1: Oh, it's also kind of funny. You're just like, yeah. how did how did we spend this much on computers? I've never even seen the computers. I've never used the computers. It's housed somewhere in Oregon, um, and those computers cost us this much money. It's unbelievable. But you know, about about six months in uh, to the company, it was actually an existential crisis, an existential problem. Because we were spending about 180 dollars per user per month on cloud computing. That's how much it cost us to run the service. For every user it was about 180 bucks per person per month, and we were charging about 100 bucks a month for the software.
0: Let me do the math on that. Yeah, that's not sustainable.
1: It's bad. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, so how do you overcome that? I mean, was that, is that waiting for technology to catch up? Because, uh, you know, Moore's law will tell us that, what is it, every year, or year and a half, things get twice as fast and, and cost half as much. I mean, is it waiting for some of those things to catch up or is it improving your own, your own software?
1: It's improving the software. Um, it, the, 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 ability, the computing power, power that we have today is just truly, truly, truly incredible, and I'm sure that there's going to be, you know, advances and 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 things over the next couple of decades. But uh, you know, you hear the common uh, adage that you know, right now, the computing power that we have in our pockets in a smartphone is more than they had to send a man to the moon yeah. in the 1960s in our pockets, yeah, and, so- and that was filling rooms and rooms and server rooms. And here we are each walking around with it. So the, the advances are, are certainly there. It's just about being smart with your architecture and using your resources wisely for the most part.
0: Yeah, hear, hear on that. Because you know I've talked to people that have done something in the cloud and then they come back on Monday and have a five-figure bill And just different stuff. And they're like, whoa. And, uh, you know, you can run that stuff up pretty quick. And, 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 you know, like you mentioned, there are some really interesting tools in AWS. There's a lot of things that are kind of ready-made that are starting to come out that give some... I I just, I I'm excited about the creativity that that's going to bring. Cause you mentioned AWS and I don't know what the exact product is, but you know, there there are certain types of server configurations and setups and programming languages that go really well with machine learning, data science, AI, stuff like that. And, you know, until I'd never heard of an R programmer until it's, you know, we started getting into some of this stuff ourselves at full scale. And it's like, some of these people are hard to find Has and and globally, there just aren't a whole lot of people that have extensive experience with machine learning or AI, has finding uh, or data science. Like, what is that? And, you know, that and has that been an issue for you?
1: I might actually say it's the opposite. I might say that it is so easy to go on Coursera and take their intro to machine learning course or go to Udemy or read uh, a few hours of blog posts. And I think that when I say it's the opposite challenge, there's no standards for what makes a great machine learning scientist, machine learning engineer. There's no standards for what makes a great data scientist. And uh, by the way, as it should be, you know, there shouldn't be this uh, gatekeeper who's the official person who certifies you in machine learning. But what that means is that a lot of folks are self-taught or taught with you know very basic tools online, so everybody is jumping in and doing something in machine learning and data science, and it's it can be tricky to figure out is this person and their skill set and their experience the type of person that we are looking for right now. So I think if you were just to go uh, and look at ten LinkedIn profiles of engineers, I would bet on five out of their ten. Someone is listing machine learning as a skill.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. So I listened to an Audible series on data science. I mean, and just because I travel to the Philippines, so I have a lot of Audibles in my library. And I was like, I'm going to look this up because I was really interested in it, and you know, listened to it a couple different times. And it, I mean, it, it and it actually was really helpful because you hear about data science, machine learning, AI, and these things—they sound intimidating. And then when you get into some of them, some of the principles have a relative simplicity around it. It's just almost like, it's just like logic, you know, and I, I give you an example as when we build a few things ourselves is like, if I know that a company has a CTO then they are a higher probability of needing what we sell than a company without a CTO Mm -hmm. because we sell technology services. So, and just different stuff like that. I mean, and and you can apply some basic data science and machine learning principles to rank these things if you have a large body of of stuff like that. So uh, with me today, once again, is Mark Bernstein. He's the CEO and founder of Balto. Go to baltosoftware.com so you can check out their product tour. And, you know, Mark, once again, thanks for joining us. Before we get into the second half of the show, I want to remind everyone that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Crown CFO. You can have a CFO at about any stage of your business, any size. Go to crowncfo.com forward slash hustle. I'm curious, have you ever used a fractional
1: service? Matt, actually, we have. And it is totally the right move.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and that's actually, we're very, we're picky about who we, we partner with, but yeah, we, we actually use crown CFO. It's great because we don't do high, high number of transactions and it gives us top people for a portion of it. What, what kind of fractional services did you guys use uh, coming up?
1: We we do the full gamut. And you know what we found is that a lot of folks at the startup stage don't need a full-time CFO because there's, uh, not enough numbers to analyze. Not enough
0: transactions, right? Right. Yeah.
1: A, a lot of the decision making needs to be very instant and very based on the feedback you're hearing, and very based on uh, a lot of times intuition and just the what your observations are. And you can't quite uh, take as much time to make all the decisions based on metrics in the early stages. Um, so what we we, we found with uh, you know a fractional CFO we're using who we absolutely love is everything from getting your financial model done when you're raising to figuring out whether you're on target with all of the key SAS metrics you need to hit to making sure that your bills are getting paid. You don't have too much in receivables. All that sort of stuff is stuff we've we've loved having a fractional CFO for.
0: Now, according to Crunchbase, I don't know if this is currently accurate, you've raised over $4 million in capital. And that's another thing, like when you go, if you want someone to give you millions of dollars of investment, having a CFO or someone like that is almost a requirement with some of them, they're not going to give you a check. And you're like, yeah, we'll figure it out later. They want to know that someone's going to have some amount of financial control. Um, In regards to raising capital, how was that process for you guys?
1: The first time, uh, so we actually raised that in two chunks. We uh, raised uh, a, a million and a quarter in the first chunk, and then we took, uh, we, we called that our pre seed, and then we took a seed of, of three million, um, actually less than a year ago at this point. Um, and the first one was hard. And the first one was hard because, uh, you know, at that point we were maybe a 10 person team three first-time founders. We're all you know, at that point, we were 24. We we're all 24. And, uh, we're building an AI that we believe can change the world. And that's uh, a pitch that is very difficult to give. So, I uh, especially you think
0: that was co- because of your age and experience, the stage of the company or the perceived competition,
1: all the above, all the above, you know, uh, I recognize now after just having done this for a few years um, that I'm an infinitely better uh, startup leader now than I was three years ago. And hopefully I'll be an infinitely better startup leader three years ago than I am now. And uh, when we first got started, you know, we said, uh, screw experience, experience doesn't matter. It's just about being smart and pivoting and, you know, working hard and doing the right thing at every moment. And um, I think that that philosophy Gets you somewhere, and it's it's not a bad one. But boy, have we learned that having a little bit of experience really helps.
0: It's it's usually those are words usually spoken by people that don't have experience oh, yeah. to kind of to justify not having it. And I agree. Like there's a there's a, a a lot of merit to what the points that you mentioned. I think with experience, and I say this as an old guy, maybe, but you know, for me, it's just like it. You know, they say trust your gut. Like I've just failed so many times on the way to being successful, a handful of times that you just learn. You're kind of like, okay, I've been down this road before, you know, I've had this feeling before, or I recognize like, and sometimes it's just cynical shit that happens as you get, you kind of, like, I am an inherently optimistic person. I have, but I have a jaded sense of optimism whenever it comes to unsigned deals or raising capital. Because I'm telling you right now, for those of you listening, 90% of the deals that I hear people tell me that are going to, quote, get funded, don't, for some reason. And, you know, there's just like, and like I said, that some of that's, and also it always takes longer than you think it will. Um, I, I see a lot of people make the mistake of going... They've got a month of runway and they're just starting to raise capital. I'm like, if it's going to be something meaningful, it ain't going to happen that fast unless you've got a rich uncle or someone like that. Um, what What's some advice you could give to someone that hasn't raised capital about going into it?
1: Yeah, I would love to give that advice because it's, I wish I had had it. Um, so the the first thing that I would say is the folks who invest in your company are investing just as much in the company as they are in you and it is absolutely important that you approach those conversations with humility and that you're uh, not coming off as arrogant or talking about things you don't understand but you also got to bring it and when you bring it what that means is um, you are showing to the investors that you have a personal conviction in the thing that you are saying you are building And that personal conviction cannot be watered down with, um, you know, not looking confident or underestimating your skills. So bring it. The second thing I would say there is that there are a handful of questions that you're going to be asked again and again and again. First things first is go look up online, what are the questions that I should have answered for an investor? Or go look at some of the Uh, materials that Bessemer has out for what a great deck looks like, or that Sequoia has out for what a great deck looks like. Don't reinvent the wheel. Like the investors are going to ask you those questions. So go figure out what they're going to ask you, plan out great responses ahead of time. And as you do so, it's going to help you think about your strategy because you're going to put that deck together. And one of the questions will be, what's your total addressable market? And you'll say, "Uh, I don't know. Let me go check. Um, Or hopefully, you know, before you started your business, but uh, you might say, I don't know. And if that's the case, uh, you're able to get smarter about your business as you do fundraising. And then last piece is as you talk to investors, actually listen to them, get their feedback on what makes your business attractive and where they see the risks. And when an investor tells you that I see a risk in your business here, too much competition or uh, not protectable or defensible, or uh, I don't know how you're going to monetize it. Um, take that to heart. They're not they're not criticizing you as an investor or a- as an entrepreneur. They're trying to help you, and they're trying to tell you here are the possible ways people in your position don't succeed. And if you take that in, um, often investors will notice you're taking that in, and they'll appreciate it, and that creates a trust that is pretty hard to build otherwise.
0: Mark, I think that was, uh, about as spot on as we've had on the show. And so I, and I got a couple supporting comments with that, first off, don't be afraid to sell people on your big vision. Um, and we've had, uh, Oh, I don't know, 10 to 12 quote VC. We'll say, you know, people from funds, regardless, and we ask all of them, do you bet on the jockey or the horse? And they all bet on people because you can have a great idea with a bad team and ain't going anywhere. Um, another thing too, is if you are passionate about your solution, and if you're out raising money, you better be, um, show it, you know, cause if, and you know, we've Matt and I have invested about a million bucks in local startups in the last year. And if you're not passionate, you're going to quit. And I say, I like entrepreneurs that have scars. So don't you, you mentioned humility, show up and confidently say, look, these are the things that we're good at. These are the things that we need to get better at, right? Because you're talking to smart people and they hear a lot of pitches. They've been around a lot of success and failure. They don't expect you to be perfect, but they do expect you to have some desire to fix and, and often rapidly the shortcomings of the business. And, and some of that is uh, sometimes fundamental. Like you mentioned $180 and, and, and server costs for a hundred dollar, you know, subscription. So how are you going to fix that and say, well, that's something, you know, we bang, bang, bang. These are the things that we think we'll see have, have happen. And, and I also think if you don't show up proper and prepared, like practice, people practice, freaking practice, I we know people it. that are I you know professional athletes, rock stars, all types of different people and while they have a talent for what they are good at, they practice more than anybody I know. So have those answers, have them ready. If you finally get that moment to be in front, you never know which pitch is the is the one that's going to happen for you, but I can tell you the one that's not going to happen for you is the one you're not ready for. So, you know, I just see people like you know, it, you would practice doing anything else. So practice, practice the pitch. You have a lot of opportunities, sit your kids down and give it to them or anyone that'll listen or record yourself and see how you look, see how you sound and stuff like that. Did you actually practice your pitch and your responses at, at, at certain points?
1: Yes. The best form of practice though, is giving the pitch. Yes. So uh, absolutely practice, but your kids won't be as tough critics as, uh, as the VCs or angel investors will. Um, when you start by finding a very small angel, angel investor who knows you personally, who trusts you personally and start practicing with that person. Right. And they're going to be excited because you guys are on that journey together. You're giving them the pitch and they'll give you feedback. You say, okay, hey, can I try giving that pitch again next week? And they'll say, yeah, sure. That's why I'm I'm here to help. And then after you do that five or 10 times, it becomes pretty compelling for them to want to give you a check, right? Uh, One of the best pieces of advice I got is uh, don't start by asking for money. Start by asking for advice. And I think that's really spot on as long as you actually genuinely want the advice. Don't just ask for advice because that's part of your strategy. Ask for your advice because you want the advice. And what do you know? The people who are great at giving advice usually have earned a little bit of money in their day. You,
0: you mentioned listening to that advice. And I, I refer to that as listening for echoes as well. Because if you give 10 pitches and you get nine of the same responses, well, you know, if you've ever broken up with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you're like, it's not you, it's me it might actually be you in those situations. And like you said, you listen to, you know, you can't take it personally and be prepared to have a well thought out response, not an argumentative objection, you know, and, 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 you know, they're not people that write investment checks are typically type a personalities. They're going to be candid and straight to the point. And I also think if you're given a pitch, do that. I shouldn't, I've, I've literally had pitches, sat in pitches and I'm at the 10 minute mark. And I'm like, Hey guys, what do you do? <laughs> like, what exactly do you do? What does your company do? And, um, you know, that's the thing is, is, is I I've said many times on the show, lead with the need. And I learned that from my book editor. If you want to get someone's attention, highlight the need. You know the problem that you're solving. Like in Balto's case, salespeople have a difficult time knowing what to say on a phone call. We help solve that problem. It's a good way to start a pitch. You know, and if you're five minutes into it and they still don't know what you do, they're probably looking at their phone, they're asleep, they don't care, they don't think you're they don't think you're very good at presenting your business or the problem you're solving. Any comments there?
1: Yeah, it's tough to build up suspense for five minutes. <laughs> You can do it. It's tough to build up suspense for five minutes.
0: You can the wrong up, five minutes to do it. That's the point. I think
1: <laughs> one minute of suspense. And by the way, I, I do agree uh, lead with the need. And I also think that you should not just say first sentence, Balto is a, that's not the first sentence. The first, the first sentence is painting that picture, but the picture is the need. And if your picture lasts five minutes, then you're it's, it, it's too long.
0: Did I do all right with leading for a need on your, on your stuff there?
1: Oh, beautiful.
0: Yeah. and But that's the point. And, you know, if someone, anyone's ever owned a business or been in that situation, they realize because, you know, finding good salespeople is tough and keeping them is tough and all of it. It's hard. Selling is not easy. Um, 90% of salespeople think they're great salespeople and they aren't. Uh, but if you can find a solution like Balta, like I really do love your product. I think it's really cool because I get it and I've tried, I've been a sales manager. I've been selling stuff ever since I can remember. And, you know, like, and and there's also weird, I I love the fact that you guys are giving some coaching uh, with the, with the software as well. Slow down, listen more. And as someone that, that can talk a lot when I'm selling, I know when to shut up and, And simple things like I have this theory that I can add 20% overnight to any company's sales figures by just getting all their salespeople to actually ask for a sale, Mm -hmm. like really basic stuff. And you talk about building up suspense. I used to be a sales trainer and I would get groups of people around and I'd be like, do you guys want to know how I've sold millions of dollars? You talk about building up five minutes of unnecessary suspense, right? I would literally build them up because they'd want to hear my, this million dollar closing line. And they think there's some magic thing. And I'd be like, do you want to go ahead and get this? <laughs> you know, and that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something that simple or, you know, like, so can we write this up? And just simple asking for stuff. And you know, there's not and do that with your do that with your investment pitch too. Don't be afraid to ask. All right. So once again, Mark Bernstein of Balto. Go to Baltosoftware.com, learn more about what they have to do. While you're on the internet, stop by Instagram. Check us out at Start A Puzzle Podcast. We end episodes of Start a Puzzle with what we call the founders freestyle. I'm going to give you a brief moment to sum up anything that you'd like to say, any info you'd like to pass on. If You you can sing if you want. You can do whatever you want. It's a freestyle. But what would you like to say to all of the hustlers out there that want to, want to get something started?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing I would say about um, sales, about fundraising, about startups, about technology, is that there needs to be this putting aside of your ego and you and what you want and what you need. And you got to put that aside and listen to the other person and ask them what in your life, in your business, in your firm, your VC, can we do to make that better? And I think that the more focused you are on the other people, uh, that that's where uh, success kind of comes in a lot of those areas. And I think that that's one of the things that we never learn in schools is how to not make it about us and make it about the other person. So if I could say one thing, it's uh, try taking some time to ask other people, how are you doing? What can I do for you?
0: I think that's brilliant advice. Um, I I, got a couple. I'm going to parlay off of that a little bit. Uh, First off, if you have a sales organization and you're not using tools like Balto, you're probably making a mistake. Um, just cause, and you think about the cost of, of missed sales and opportunities, do the math on it. Cause you'll come back at the end of that and buy all kinds of stuff because it'll, it'll make sense. And then from the sales side, a good salesperson's a problem solver. And that's much like what you just said. If you, you know, if, if you're going to call someone and if, if you're trying to sell anyone, anything, what can I do to make your life easier? And I've been through this. I, it, took me to was probably about probably 10 years ago, maybe when I, the light bulb really popped and I realized that you cannot put a price on peace of mind. And therefore that is one of the most valuable things you can sell. So some of these things uh, you mentioned, you, you know, talk about using something like Balto. Are you concerned that your sales team is just flubbing sales all day? Well, there you go. That might give you a little peace of mind. You feel like you're just a broken record repeating the things that you want to say. Go find something like Balto. Program it to do what you need. Get the answers. I love controlling the narrative in that regard. And it's not it's not about creating an army of robots. It's about giving good information to clients, not wasting people's time. Because, and that's the next thing is, you know, without, some, without stuff like this, you... Okay, uh, I'm not really the right person to answer that question. I don't really know. I'll have to get back with you. Blah blah blah. Now you're in a whole different problem to solve, which is actually making sure your salespeople follow up, right, and do different stuff. And it just goes on and on and on. So, yeah. Overall, man, I, I, I really, I really love what you guys are doing. I love what you're doing in the state of Missouri, even though I live in Kansas and I am a Jayhawks fan. Just letting you know, Royals fan too. Um, I, I, I will admit though, St. I Louis. St. Louis has done such a better job of, of having a better baseball team since 1985. The um,
1: sports culture in St. Louis is awesome. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of the, the Blues, right? You know, the, oh, yeah. the, the, the Stanley Cup champions. <laughs> and now two years in a row because we had to cancel the hockey season.
0: Yeah, I true. Hey, I like, I like the way I like a little good fact shaping there. So well, Mark, thanks for hanging out with me today. Uh, I'm going to check this out. I'm actually really interested in using this as because at full scale, we're planning on hiring 10 new salespeople in the next, you know, six to 12 months. And one of the issues that we've been tackling and solving or trying to solve is how we're going to do what Balto does. So Looks like I gotta get I gotta get to work and and figure some stuff out here. Thanks Matt. for joining me.
1: Yeah, no problem. I'm gonna actually uh, take your advice and uh, on air say, uh, do you want to set up a demo?
0: I, I love it. Yes, I do. I'll schedule that through your website. Thanks, man.
1: Done. You got it. Have a good day.